0: Some common sense. Yes,
1: sir. They have the stopped in and by the We still don't know who pulled the trigger.
0: Everyone and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired NYPD sergeant, 27-year veteran, and with me tonight is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight,
1: Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm very honored and proud to have these two guys as our guests and introduce them, Bill.
0: Well, you know, I told them like, don't expect anything. We're gonna bust your balls, like just like we do any other cops we have on this show, you know. Cops and he, cops, you know. That's what, that's what DEA stands for. Don't expect anything. <laughs> that's right. But I just want to tell you know, this is I have their book right here. Uh we see it Manhunters. Let me see if I can hold it correctly so you can see it. And hugely successful. And of course, the story of uh them being involved in the capture, not just involved, instrumental in the capture of Pablo Escobar and on the T- the Netflix special, Narcos. And many of you folks should know that show. And if you don't, go watch it quick and come back. No, you know, it's an amazing show. And these guys, they're living large now. They're doing unbelievable. They're going to 50, 60 dates a year talking. Uh, I tried to see if they wear Rolexes. They don't. <laughs> but uh yeah they're gonna even show they're gonna show their uh their wrist but they were doing great steve uh, dea agent steve murphy and javier peño welcome to the show guys
2: Oh man!
3: Thank you for that's a great introduction. It's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> I could never
0: repeat that uh, introduction. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah,
3: honored, honored to be here, man. Looking forward to it. That's
0: great. You know, I, I know I had invited you guys a couple of months ago, and something happened. We couldn't yeah. do it, and but now uh, I'm glad glad to have you guys here. Now the story of you guys, and I know both of you worked in small police departments before mm-hmm. your dream of going on the DEA became true. Uh, Steve, why don't you tell us just a quick background on, on uh, you working on a small police department?
2: Uh, thank you, Bill. And and uh, truly, we are honored to be here with you guys. It's it's hanging out with retired cops. It's like coming back into the, the law enforcement brotherhood and sisterhood. So just can't tell you how tickled we are to be with you. But I started as a, uh, a uniformed police officer in 1975 in a small town called Bluefield, West Virginia. We had 35 police officers. You know, it, was, it was equivalent to NYPD. Um, yeah. <laughs>
0: 1975 know. that's the year i graduated high school i didn't know you guys were this old hey don't rub it in don't rub it in
2: okay <laughs> but uh spent six years there as a, a uniform officer then went to the railroad police believe it or not with norfolk southern railroad back in hey, the
1: fellow transit cop.
2: there you go there you go uh, did that for almost six years but it just wasn't my cup of tea i mean it's I love railroad police officers, dedicated individuals, most of them former police officers, but it just wasn't what I was interested in. And and, I heard about DEA, didn't know much about it. Had a good friend, Pete Ramey, who was a railroad police officer, former Virginia state trooper, that uh, told me all about it and got me interested. And I applied, it took two years to get hired. Uh, Came on in 1987, uh, three months in the DEA Academy, then first posting Miami Florida. got there in 1987 for four years. Three years in Bogota, Columbia, three and a half in Greensboro, North Carolina, three and a half in Atlanta, five Washington, three and a half back in Atlanta and finished out my career in, in Washington. So it's, it's like a yo-yo. It sounds like I can't hold a job. Doesn't it? It, it It
0: sounds like you were hooked up to wind up in Miami as your first assignment.
2: It, it uh, I you know what? It was like being a kid in a candy store. I fell in love with this job that. I got to tell you a quick story. The most now I've been a cop for almost 12 years. The most cocaine I've ever seen it after 12 years was two ounces, a baggie like this. The first case I got to work on undercover with DEA, we picked up 400 kilos. Wow. So I went from two ounces to 880 pounds down the Turks and Caicos Islands. I tell everybody I was addicted to cocaine just in a different way, right?
0: That's yeah. unbelievable.
2: It was cool. And you know,
0: back then the bodies were dropping left and right all over the streets of Miami, right?
2: It was still the Wild West. It had calmed down a little bit from the mid '80s, but um, they still had the refrigerated trucks out there where the the morgue was storing the bodies because they just simply didn't have enough room for all the uh, all the murders that were going on down there. And, and, and that, that was was
0: was, was that pre Marielitos boat people? No, this is post.
2: It's post. They were already there, um, you know. And I mean, if you've seen the movie, Javier talks about this during our shows. If you've seen the movie uh, Scarface. Look at so the, the, the bad guy. guy! Look, everyone! Look at the bad guy!
0: <laughs> Say hello to the bad guy because you're never going to see it you again. Your womb is polluted. You can't even have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: so, but you know what? I mean, it was uh, we were, we were much younger then. It was exciting. Life was good. You know, uh, I thought it was going to be like Miami Vice, where you'd have the long hair and the fancy cars and the bikini-clad girls. I'm still waiting on all that shit to happen. <laughs> Yeah, I like the way
1: those guys, they would carry a, a big 45 with their pants with no belt and just whip it out. Like yeah, yeah.
0: How, how, how did your pants stay up carrying a 45 yeah, exactly, in it, you know?
1: exactly.
3: Yeah, That's yeah. what I'm talking about. Javier, I don't
0: know if you can beat Steve's story, but same oh, yeah. story.
3: Well, I think I'm a little older than you because I graduated high school in 74. So, yeah, you graduated in 75? Yes. I graduated uh, 74 in 74 uh, and. It, what got me with, you know, internship, you know, I was in college and I, would, uh, I did a stint at, uh, at the prison unit in Huntsville, you know, at Texas department of corrections. And I did about what, about three, four months in, uh, then afterwards, uh, Sheriff's Office in Laredo, 1977, was hiring, and uh, so I applied, got uh, got there, and I did what a lot of cops do. I went to school uh, during the day, work at night, right? I asked for a night shift, like a lot of us have done, you know. I was able to get my uh, degree, and uh, towards the end of my I think my senior years, when I saw a posting that DEA was hiring, and you know what, I'm, I'm different from Steve. I did not know what DEA was. I had to ask somebody, hey, what the hell is DEA, drug enforcement? Uh, somebody said, stupid, it's the federal marks. You know, what, <laughs> what attracted me, you know, I was making 10000 a year with the sheriff's office, and I think the DEA was paying, I think it was starting like at twenty or $21,000. i am like, Whoa, holy shit, I'll double my pay, you know? And uh, I applied. And, you know, my my deal was to be there a couple of years because I love Laredo. I was a lieutenant. I was teaching part time at a junior college. You know, I had it made. So I just said, hey, I just want to go see what the feds is all about. So uh, and I uh, my first job in, in DEA was Austin, Texas back in 1984 and it's Austin was rocking at that time. It was the start of that music industry. We used to go see George Strait for free. You know, it was just, it was getting started. And, uh, you know, it, oh, and also I got to say that, you know, I had like 10 months and I got sent to Mexico to help in the search of our agent Kiki Camarena when he got abducted, kidnapped, right. killed. So I had like 10 months on the job uh, that, Opened my eyes, uh, you know, for the search. I, um, you know, anyway, I'm, I'm a young. You know, guy. Javier,
0: can I, can I just ask yeah. you a quick question about that? Of course. That the, the 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 kidnapping and the murder of Kiki Camarena, that just shut down everything. And that's the way law enforcement used to be. You you're, you're going to kill a de agent. You're going to kill an NYPD cop. We're going to shut this city down. Yeah, Is it and, still like that? Do you think
3: that it's not right? It's not like that anymore. No, of course not, not in Mexico. But that that, at that time it was so serious that the president shut down the border because we weren't getting help from Mexico. No cooperation. So I think it was like a two-hour. Can you imagine the whole Mexico-US border was shut down that showed, you know, the Mexicans then scrambled, and they were finally able to tell us where the, the body was. But, and, and you're right, somebody gets hurt, law enforcement, we're going to go after you. And it could be, you know what, it could be one year, look at the 30 years, look at what just happened uh, with Carlo Quintero, right? The guy who killed our agent, Camarena, the guy yeah. went to prison, he paid a judge, they let him out, he was on the run for about 13 years. He finally gets arrested uh, this past week. And you know what? I've, I've been doing some uh, talk shows in Spanish, and I always tell them, hey, I hope Mexico does the right thing and gets him extradited. Because if he's done, he's going to be out of jail here pretty soon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the corruption, as we know. So anyway, that's yeah, just a little bit. You know, so uh, Austin, I did four years. Went to Colombia. I get there in 88, and I leave 94. From Colombia, I go to Puerto Rico, which was an eye-opener. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh Working in Puerto Rico, I had the task force, the the police task force. Wow, we did a lot of stuff. There was a lot of violence at that time in Puerto Rico with all the carjackings and all the drug points that you know. But anyway, after Puerto Rico, three years went to headquarters, two, then went back to Colombia for another two years, then San Antonio, then San Francisco uh Puerto Rico and finished my career in Houston in 2014 so I did uh, 30 years with DEA and seven years with the sheriff's office and uh you know I I tell people in like some of y'all right uh when I was with the sheriff's office, you know what? I hated the feds. You know, they treated us like shit. You know how it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we got the same
1: treatment in New York,
3: boy. Yeah, the same thing, man. they come in. Not you know. DEA
1: so much, Marty, but the Pheebs, the FBI. Uh, yeah, yeah. them the Pheebs,
3: but- Anyway, so uh, that's been, uh, yeah, like you said, hey, had, uh, you know, I came on with DEA with two years, and I stayed 30. But uh, it's been a good career. It's been fun. A lot of... Uh, Trying moments, a lot of times where I just wanted to quit. <laughs> I think y'all know yeah. what you know. Uh, you just, you know, just keep on going, right?
0: Let's talk about, and uh, especially for our listeners, and maybe I'll address this to you, Steve. Is that you're in Miami? How do you go about catching these big cases?
2: Man, I tell you what. In in the, in the late, anytime in the 1980s, if you couldn't make a drug case in Miami, you needed to go find a different career. You know, you hear the stories about the the bales of marijuana and the bales of cocaine washing up on the beaches. That's all true. I mean, that stuff, it was it was not literally falling out of the sky, but it was coming from somewhere. Right. Um, So the uh, you just well, just like any other job, you're you know, you're the newbie. You're the rookie on the job. And I've been a cop for 12 years. But when you come into a new agency, you're the rookie all over again. Right. So I got hooked up with uh, a senior agent, Gene Frankar, who was um, just phenomenally intelligent, knew how to make cases. That was his cake, case where we picked up the 400 keys down in Turks and Caicos Islands that he'd been working on for a couple of years. And actually that case, when it was ready to go to trial to grand jury, he had the evidence to indict Raul Castro, Fidel Castro's brother out of Cuba. Wow. Because The whole purpose of the case was to show that Cuba was being used as a transshipment point for cocaine coming out of Columbia, coming into South Florida. And, uh, and, and so this was my first eye eye-opening opportunity to see how politics works in the federal government, you know, through, through the chain of command, the call comes down from the white house. Uh, uh-uh, you're not indicting him. You, you back off, you leave him alone. So he never got indicted. And in our book, Manhunters, it's the, uh, just so everybody knows we didn't write that book we hired an extremely intelligent Isabel vincent ghostwriter uh isabel fantastic uh just on the phone with her yesterday as a matter of fact we we've become friends and stay in contact and she did the research to corroborate that story where when it came out publicly that that uh the united states wanted to indict role and and you know the white house said no well, the Castro stepped up and said, oh, well, you know what? It wasn't us. It was these four Cuban army generals. And so we put them before a firing squad and we killed them for you. You know, <laughs> just you talk about scapegoats, man. I, I was just going to say
1: scapegoats. Yeah, they scapegoated those four guys for sure. Oh, uh,
0: you know, not so caped crusader 62. Thank you for the $10 super chat. And he says, my thanks to Steve and Javier for being here to tell the story. Rest in peace, Kiki. He's referring to Kiki oh, Camarena. Oh, Uh, very nice uh, very well thank you so much and that's you know you know one of the things that i think it's so and look i was never in narcotics in my whole career i i went towards what was the results of narcotics which was robberies and murders and shootings and things like that but when you talk about the big drug trade and at the big level like you guys went after pablo escobar governments were involved and there's huge huge corruption whether it's on the side in, in, on the with Pablo Escobar Colombia or whether it's on this, our country being corrupt. And we can draw parallels to today with the open borders of people pouring across our border and the fentanyl problem with this country right now. And it's seemingly no one's doing anything about it. And it
3: seems like it's being allowed. Your, your comments, guys. You know what? You're right. That fentanyl that's coming across, and, and you know, I'm. Wow, well, I mean, my last job was in Houston, so I I ran the Southwest border area. You know, all the crossing. What I'm seeing right now, it's it hasn't stopped, and it has. There's still a lot of dope, and especially this counterfeit pills. You know, we belong to another group, and you hear the stories from family members that. My kid never used dope, which is true, but they gave him a pill or he bought a, one was just couldn't sleep, buddy of his gave him a Xanax pill that was filled with fentanyl that that was bought in the black market. That's the type of examples, ladies who never taken, hey, a friend here, try this pill. They bought it off the black market and it's filled with fentanyl. That's like thousands and thousands of examples of what's going on. So uh, it, it is bad. And uh, I, I just, you know, we see it. I mean, I see the seizures here at the border. Uh, I think they got another 100 pounds in Laredo rate of uh, fentanyl. I mean, it's just, it, it's coming across. And uh, you know what? You know, we have the demand, right? I mean, you know. Um, I mean, yeah, I, the the yeah, scary
1: yeah. thing that I've been seeing recently is that the case that I think you're referencing uh, with the pill, that, where the person bought the one pill that had a backache or a Xanax, right. It was bought through like Snapchat, which is a social media outlet that is geared towards young people. That's the real scary thing. A kid that really wasn't addicted to drugs, but was accidentally poisoned with a pill that was uh, marketed as a Xanax or as a Percocet. And however, it turned out to be fentanyl. And you don't need very much fentanyl to put you into cardiac arrest, as we know. So that's a real scary thing. Yeah,
3: Phil, thank you for saying that because that's what's happening. People that never use, they bought them on all those uh, websites, and they are they're counterfeit pills. Uh, they're filled, like shit, all you need is, I think they've explained it to us, it's just like one little uh salt grain you know one and that's kill kill size of a grain of
1: salt
0: exactly right
3: grain of salt but yeah you hear that example where my kid and I believe him you know never but you know hey buddy my my back is hurting I can't sleep hey buddy here try this pill Mm -hmm. Xanax it could be per I mean you know any pain pill out there just they're they're counterfeit so that that is a problem But, but going back the border we're still seeing a lot of dope coming across and uh, it's it's happening. You know, this traffickers aren't starting. What happened with Chapo? Right. He's in the U.S. Somebody else took it over. Right. So it's just uh, it's an ongoing game.
2: And You know, just to add to that a little bit with um, the, the Mexican cartels, they're getting all the chemicals from the Chinese. So the Chinese are just as culpable in this mess as the Mexican cartels. So I just want to make sure they get their fair share of the credit for what's going on. You know, it it
0: also, you know, when we talk about it, you know, I always, when people say, you guys are cops, why are you going to be so political? The P in police stands for politics. Trust me. (laughs) And, and it's so damn true. Willis Pony. Thank you so much for the 999 super chat. Wow. Already blown away by these superstar guests. Thank you. Willis. Absolutely
1: right. These guys are superstars. And, you know, it's, I mean, so let me make a point about the political before you go on, because I got, while well, I got this thought in my mind: the politics of what Steve was just saying, how they had uh, one of the Castro brothers ready for indictment, and the government said, "Oh no, no, you can't indict him." I mean, politics is 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 part of the. Uh, it's part of the mixture in, in law enforcement, unfortunately. I mean, uh, local police departments like ours was basically uh, the police commissioner works at the hands of the mayor and the mayor is a political, you know, he's hes uh, elected. So politics plays a major role in law enforcement.
2: Well, and that wasn't that wasn't the last time we had that happen where we were going after somebody, the head of a country. hugger you, you want to tell the story or you want yeah. to tell?
3: Yeah, go ahead. Right?
2: Yeah, you're, yeah. So when we finished up the Escobar investigation, when he was killed before we left Colombia, there was a, a guy came in who was an informant. Uh, he be, who became an informant, but he worked for Escobar, and he told us his job was to fly to Haiti every few weeks, and and he was given suitcases full of money. I think it was four hundred thousand dollars a month he was given to the president of Haiti. Uh, and, and you know, it's no it's no secret this is his this is history that we're talking about. Jean Bertrand Aristide was the, the president of Haiti at the time. So, you know, when you make an accusation against the head of a country, that's a big deal in the federal government. You know, it's got to go to the highest levels to get approval for indictments and so forth. And we're in Miami ready to go to the grand jury on this. And we get another one of those calls that comes down through the chain of command from the White House that says, stand down, you're not indicting this guy. Well, if you go back and, and look at who the president was at that time, and I won't say his name, slick Willie. You can figure it out. <laughs> um, I love if, this guy. And if if you look who, if you look what happened to Jean Bertrand Aristide, the air, the the president, our president gave him asylum in the United States. And so, how after we were, you know, when we were in Colombia, we had we had SEAL Team Six there with us in Medellin for eighteen months. We had the Army's Delta Force. And in retirement, Javier and I were participating in this training course, and it was—it's—it's it's nothing tactical or operational that we were going to the, to the SEAL Team Six headquarters in Damn Neck, Virginia, putting on a three-day school, and we get to meet, you know, a lot of the new SEALs that weren't around back during our day, and and you actually spoke to one, Javier, right? Yeah, yeah. And he he talked about how he was on the team that reinstated Aristide as the president of Haiti. And now you go back and look at that, and I I try to stay apolitical because I can make fun of both sides of the aisle. Politicians are just an easy target. Oh, yeah. But if you look at the uh, foundation that that particular president continues to support, it's the Haitian foundation, you know, so it just makes you wonder where's, you know, what's really going on here? Yeah.
0: You know, Steve, I remember they brought brought Aristide to New York. And they had a big thing for him in Central Park. Yeah. And before he fled Haiti, they tried, they put a hit on him. And uh, he got into New York and they were like, oh, P- Premier, was so glad that you're okay. Like, I was like,
2: who is this guy? You know, it was, it was <laughs> yeah, crazy. The, the, the politics, of the bureaucracy gets in the way and it just really interferes. You know, and, and that's one thing we try to tell people is we're law enforcement. All of us are law enforcement. We don't make the damn laws. We're just tasked with enforcing the laws. And then when you try to do your job, that's when the politics gets in the way.
0: You know, let's get back to um, the whole thing where Colombia, the drugs were just out of control. And we, of course, have Pablo Escobar. And he's ruling with an iron fist. He's whacking people, he's killed over 500 cops, I believe, right? Over uh, thousands of cops. And, you know, a drug, drug operation of that size cannot operate without the corruption on the level that he had. I mean, he was paying off presidents. He's paying off the police were in bed with him. And I mean, I can't imagine how you guys, how you knew who you could trust and who you couldn't trust. Maybe you didn't and had to be a really slippery slope to work on back
3: in those days. Yeah. Well, and you know what, at the beginning and, uh, there was some corruption, but we made the mistake where we had cops from Medellin working with us. So what Escobar did was he got to their families and told them, hey, you're a cop. I know he's assigned to the search block. That's what we called it, Bloque de Búsqueda, where we were looking for Pablo Escobar. And pretty much would tell them, hey, if your kid doesn't call you, and then you have to call me that they're coming after me. I'm going to kill your kid. If he doesn't make that call, then I'm going to kill you, the family. So we learned. So from there on, we just, we didn't use cops from Medellin. But you know what? The corruption with the cops was not that out there. Uh, Corruption with politicians, it was. We saw that. We we saw judges being corrupt. Uh, But uh, with with the cops and I got you know I you know I'm sure we'll get into it here in a little bit but what happened with them is that because Pablo was killing a lot of them these cops hated Pablo Escobar they hated and in fact they they would tell us hey Javier Steve we're not here to seize money we're not here to seize dope we're here to kill Pablo Escobar that was that that vengeance that they had because of all the cops that uh, – Pablo had killed, so it was different. Like I said, I, I saw the corruption at the highest levels. I saw the the officials. We have a, uh, and I, I'm, I'm not sure, but there's a there's a videotape around because we've videotaped it, where uh, Pablo Escobar. Attorney, his main attorney comes into a room and we had a videotape. Tells a, tells a Colombian congressman, he says, I'm working. The attorney says, Right on the tape, I'm working for Pablo Escobar. And Mr. Escobar wants you to vote against the extradition process. And here it is, I think they gave him like $100,000 and we have that on tape. So, and that was that philosophy that Mr. Escobar is giving you this money and uh you know vote against their tradition then the judges you know i would i tell a story where sicarios walked into this judge's office one day briefcase and said judge we're here we're sent by mr escobar and we know you have a case on him mr escobar wants you to drop the charges on him and this money is yours hundred thousand dollars that judge kicked out those two Sicarios. The next day, they killed the judge, his wife, and his kids. So from there on, polit- people started accepting those briefcases, and I do not blame them for taking those briefcases. So, uh, yeah, the corruption played, but we had a special group, uh, and ag- again. Uh, well, Javier,
0: you know- how about this picture on the screen? Could you tell our uh, viewers what that is?
3: Yep, that's the famous La Catedral, Pablo Escobar's uh, so-called uh, prison. Uh, and, you know, if, when, if you see that fence, I mean, there was holes and there was, you know, uh, and there was no bars, you know, inside. I think one window had some bars, but the rest of the Pablo Escobar's prison, it wasn't a prison. It was a country oh, club. Oh, it was like his, his country set. club prison. Yeah, it was a country club setting. It was it was, it was like
1: his summer home.
3: Yeah, yeah, it, it, it was fancy. I mean, this is hippopotamuses. There, he loved yeah. hippos, right? And you've heard about the hippo problem right now, right? In Colombia, they're, they're running, they're overrunning yeah. the country, there's right? A hundred hippos they escaped from uh, from his zoo, from his finca, from his ranch, and they multiplied uh i think they're they're about a hundred right now they're uh making havoc in colombia destroying all sorts of stuff they do not <laughs> know how to control them so you know what i'm glad that happened because and you know what and i blame the government for doing that for letting you know the guy had a zoo had animals that's uh, Pablo Escobar's wife and uh so the animals have escaped well the hippos all the rest, some of the animals went to the zoos, but they let the apples go. So they multiplied. I got a quick
1: question, Billy, uh, regarding the, we touch base on the uh, the corruption end of it, but specifically now not counting analysts and whatever contacts you had throughout the, the world, really, uh, how many guys worked on or how many agents, whether they be guys or girls, uh, how many altogether worked on the task force to get Pablo Escobar?
3: You're looking at them, <laughs> Steve and I. <laughs> That's a really, yep. I mean, we had an analyst back in uh Bogota, but you know what? DEA, and I don't know who came up with the concept, but they created a program called TKO Targeted Kingpin Offender Program where people, DEA working in uh Miami, New York, NYPD was a big help. Mm-hmm. NYPD did a lot of stuff during the Escobar days because there was a lot of uh escobar traffickers working in new york right remember and nypd was always sending us leads so they they did a great job with us but i
1: think bernie kerrick had a little to do with that if i'm not mistaken
3: yeah yeah no it it was great so they would focus on anybody working for escobar in the states and take them down so it, it was great i mean there was times we would do simultaneous takedowns in new york Miami, and we take down people down in Colombia. And we've gotten away from that concept, but that concept worked because you're taking down people that are working in both uh, countries, you know. So it, it was good. But there was a lot of activity in New York with Escobar people.
0: Now, he was terrified of the extradition uh, process because obviously, if he got extradited outside of Colombia, he was going to do.
3: Life without parole for his. And and you know what? I'm I'm glad you brought that up, Bill, because a lot of people do not realize that Pablo Escobar's fight was based on extradition. He did not want to get extradited. In fact, he had a. uh, It was a letterhead, and they would drop it at the bomb sites, car bombs. When they would put the car bomb, car bomb, you would see a letter that said the extraditables In English, it read. Well, in Spanish, it was, Prefiero una tumba en Colombia to un calaboso en Estados Unidos. Translated, I prefer a tomb in Colombia than a jail cell in the United States. That was what the fight was all about.
0: Wow. You know, when we had Sammy the Bull Gravano on our show, he had mentioned that uh, he thought that perhaps the mob could have been more successful if they weren't as violent as they were that perhaps they killed too many people. Do you think the drug trade, that's also true, or is that the only way they keep people in line and they instill that fear is to have that violent and, and the, the willingness and the ability to kill people at will?
2: Well, you know, crime is extremely violent and I'm preaching to the choir by telling you guys, I mean, in y, being, being a cop in New York, I can't imagine what that's like, but I tell you this the one year that Pablo was in prison, the car bomb stopped. So I'm certainly not saying that's the solution to letting him surrender to his custom built prison, which turned out to be a joke. I mean, it was what a huge embarrassment for the country of Colombia. And, and just speaking of Colombia, just so you guys know, we love it. We love Colombia. We love uh, the Colombian people down there are extremely accepting. If you go in and act like an ugly American, they're going to treat you like the ugly American. But if you go in with a smile on your face and and, and realize that you're in their culture and try to get along, try to use what little bit of Spanish you know, if any at all. They're very accepting. They're very pleasant people. But again, you act like the ugly American, they'll tell you where the airport is and you can put your happy butt on the plane and you know head on back up to the States. But um, that was just one example that you know when he got his way, the violence did stop. Now we know he was continuing to run his drug enterprise from prison. He was rebuilding his coffers. You know, he was charging a war tax. Uh, He was just rebuilding his whole organization. So it wasn't like he went in this little country club and went straight, you know what I mean? And then towards the end, when he thought uh, Kiko Munkata and Fernando Galeano were holding out on him, he ends up killing both of them in the prison. And that's what eventually led to the escape. So um, the, the violence, I think, you know, I think Sammy the Bull might be right because the violence is what brings so much bad publicity. Another example when Los Pepis became into existence down there now, now Los Pepis is nothing but a group of vigilantes which we don't condone in law enforcement the rule of law does not condone condone vigilantes right and that's what Los Pepis were but what they did is they took Escobar's tactics and used them against him which were extremely violent killing innocent people and you know what the initial response of the Colombian public was thumbs up let's give him a taste of his own medicine but then he ends up killing a couple of attorneys, which that in itself might not be such a bad thing. But <laughs> one of them happened to have. Did, I did,
0: didn't Shakespeare say, 1st let's kill all the attorneys"? Didn't you say that? Joe
2: Murray is it Bill. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. But but the, one of the uh, one of the attorneys had his kid with him, ten year old kid, and they killed the kid. Now in Colombia, you know, here in the United States, we don't put stuff like that in the media, in the newspapers, and on TV. In Colombia, they do. They they show the bodies. It's it's very. Um I guess grotesque, but I mean it's real, it's raw what you in see in your face,
1: though. so to speak. Yeah.
2: yeah. And so when that happened, then that's what started turning public opinion against Los Pepes and the violence. That, so that's what turned, you know, so I, the whole all of that to say, Sammy Bull might be right by saying that yeah. he was onto something. That Sammy. Well, as
0: Pony, only these two men took down Escobar. U.S. heroes with capes, us heroes. Well, there's Pony, again, thank you for another 999 Super Chat. Holy hippos, she says.
1: <laughs> Holy well, I just hippos. want to read out a, a few statistics on this Pablo Escobar that I found really, really amazing. Now, during the 80s and 90s, 80% of the cocaine that was coming into the country was from him. His net worth, they said it was $30 billion. It was probably much, much higher. This really strikes $2,500, I believe, a month on rubber bands just to stack the cash. Now, think about that. And that's in the 80s and 90s. The rat's eating a half a billion every year of his money. Uh, he burned $2 million to keep his daughter warm at some point. Uh, ten, He offered to pay a $10 billion national debt of Columbia, I guess, when he was trying to, you know, stay out of jail. Owned 800 homes, built 60 lakes, smuggled 15 tons of cocaine a day at his peak, 30 thousand pounds a day. I mean, and he earned $420 million a week estimated. I mean, this is really like, this sounds like the template for Amazon today that this guy was a tremendous, tremendous businessman. I mean, obviously he was using violence and car bombs to, you know, uh, accelerate his business, but uh, wow, this is really something. I mean, when you think about those numbers and those, the $2,500 in rubber bands, I mean, come on, that's really, really insane.
2: It is, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, people think that, you know, this is all made up by Hollywood or whatever, and it wasn't, it's, this is, that's that's the reason Javier and I travel around the world. And this is our seventh year of doing this is to tell the true story. You know, it's, we present it as a lesson in history and we study history to learn from our mistakes, right? So that ostensibly you don't want to make the same mistakes again, but the truth is we always do. But that's what we want. We just want the world to know the truth. It's, it's our book tells the truth. Um, the other book that's out, um, Killing Pablo and, you know, it's, it's so, so, and that's the book, that book cover you just put up that's the book cover for our, our book in Australia, New Zealand.
0: That looks pretty damn good. You know, yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to just talk about this picture because it was rather controversial. Uh, and when it, when it came out and the, 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 the previous one where they just have the, um the National Police, the Columbia National Police there. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
0: You, of course, worked and and risked your life and went on raids and did all kinds of stuff with these guys. So when they did kill Pablo Escobar, and I know that, uh, Steve, I heard you talk about it on another podcast, that you 100% gave them credit because people were trying to say, oh, no, it was SEAL Team 6 killed him." No, it was the DEA. And you said, no, no, it was absolutely the Columbia national police that killed him, and you gave them credit for that. Mm-hmm. So I think that when they did kill him and take him down, here's this violent man that, you know, had killed thousands of people. And it's almost like, you know, when you go fishing, you ever go deep sea fishing, you catch your, you catch a big fish. You want to take a picture of it. Right. right but right. I don't think that the, um, the people in our country more or less appreciated you posing with his dead body. You want to comment on that?
2: Yeah, it's, um, you know, I'll be honest with you, it's not a picture I'm especially proud of. Uh, you're right, when that picture hit Washington, you know, DEA headquarters, I, I was a little bit of hot water over that. Um, what happened out there that day, and if you've seen the narco series, it shows that I was on the roof when Pablo was killed. That's not true. I was back at the base, I, I rode out with Colonel Martinez, who was our boss, he was the head of the search block. I rode out with him after the fact, so you know. That's why we say, and here's the other thing I'll say before I explain that picture is if you don't remember anything else we tell you today, are you guys still there?
1: I just
0: gave you the whole screen. It's okay.
2: (laughs) You can tell I'm very technically savvy, right? But if if everybody that's listening to this doesn't remember anything else we say today, this is what we want you to take away from our, our discussion this evening is the true heroes of that entire investigation of the Columbia National Police because they took their country back from this piece of crap. You know, we get, I mean, you guys are gracious. You call us heroes and other people do too. We're not heroes. We're just a couple of professional law law enforcement officers just like you guys who went and did our job. And people say, well, what happened after you killed Escobar? The same thing that happens in any crime. When that crime's over, you move on to the next case, right? Exactly. exactly. Well, you know,
0: Steve, you're so right because, I mean, in New York City in the middle 80s, the late 80s, the crack wars were going on. And the streets of Washington Heights were absolutely controlled by Dominicans from the Dominican Republic that ran these drug corners. And they were just, there was 129 murders that year. And the blood was every night. It seemed like, well, every two or three days, there was a fresh murder. Uh 129 murders, and it was all because of the, you know, the cocaine trade, the crack trade. It was out of control, and it was it wasn't only Washington Heights. I believe in 1990, there was 2,200 murders in New York City, and largely it was because of the drug trade.
2: Yeah, yeah. So back to that photograph. As it turns out, I, I used to carry a camera with me everywhere I went down there. It's you know, it was my little, it was my wife's little 35 millimeter would fit my pocket. And you can see, we just we just wear blue jeans and polo shirts down there. We weren't allowed to wear anything that looked like police or military. So when I get out there that day, I start taking these pictures. And and those other guys in the pictures, those are the cops we've been working with for 18 months. Those guys are like brothers. You know, they these are the guys that when it hits the fan, they're risking their own lives to keep us safe. You know, we we knew they're not going to run and leave us, but they also knew we wouldn't run off and leave them either. So it was a very... Uh, very strong bond, mutual respect between each other. So I'm taking their pictures out there and, and they're like, stick, stick. And my nickname was stick because they couldn't say Steve correctly. So <laughs> yeah, I'm a lot of things, I'm not a stick, but, uh, they'd say stick, steak come on and get, get in here and get the picture. And so that's how I got that picture. Now, um, we show that picture in every one of our, our shows, cause we always have Q and A Q&A at the end and we don't, I don't shy away from it. I, you know, I want people to know why that picture was taken uh, and what the significance of it is. And this is the honest truth. I got caught up in the elation with everybody else because we were all so freaking happy that Pablo Escobar was finally dead. A man who's killed over 1000 police officers were killed in one case, just one case, not one city, not one country, one case. It's, it's just unimaginable.
1: How about, uh, Kiki? How about Kiki, what he did to Kiki? I mean, that alone, you should be proud of that picture. And anybody that had a problem with it, I don't curse off and fuck them. I'm very proud of that picture. He deserves to be where he was, he killed a thousand police officers, many, many innocent people, and they tortured that poor Kiki Camarena. So he got exactly what he deserved.
2: And you know what? We were on a documentary. Um, I can't, I can't, was Was it Facing Facing Escobar, Javier was that. Yeah, name? Yeah. But anyway, one of his remaining Sicario, who's now dead, he died a few years ago from cancer. They called him Popeye. Popeye says on this documentary, we we attribute maybe ten to fifteen, maybe twenty thousand deaths to Pablo Escobar. Popeye says that number's completely wrong. He said the number's more like fifty thousand deaths that Pablo's responsible for. Papa Popeye, Popeye admitted on TV that he killed as many as 300 people himself and arranged as many as 3,000 murders. And he was just one Sicario working for Pablo. So people say, well, especially when we go to Europe, um, they'd like to bust our chops over there. And we used to let them yell up questions from the audience and and we learned our lesson not to do that. So we handle it a different way now. But um, they say, hey, your job as a a law enforcement professional is to protect human life and property, And and that's right. That's what that's what our main responsibility is. Well, there's a picture of you with a dead man. How do you explain that? Man, the the reason we're all smiling is because we all knew as soon as Pablo Escobar ceased to exist, every citizen in the country of Colombia was safer just simply because this one guy's gone. And then people will say, well, don't you have any remorse? Just like you said, Phil, he got exactly what he deserved that day. That that boy didn't deserve any better than what he got there. Exactly.
0: Absolutely. Well, as Pony, again, thank you for the 999 Super Chat. They don't make them like you anymore. Mad respect. Amazing. Wow. You guys are getting, you guys are like celebrities here on our show.
2: She's you talking about Bill and Phil there.
0: Huh? Uh, I don't know. I think, I think she's talking about you two guys. That's, you know, I listened, I told you, I listened to Patrick Bet David and you guys are on their show and I can't put anything on his show on our show. Cause I get, and I did it once and I get hit with a copyright infringement. But yeah. there was one thing he spoke about with you guys. And Pablo Escobar was on the phone with his wife. And he was saying, honey, I love you so much. I miss you. This, And they could hear the, the person being tortured in the background as he's telling his wife how much he loves her. And then at some point, the guy was killed. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a real psycho. That's a real yeah. psychopath that can do that.
3: Yeah, and, and you know what? And I listened to that cough. I personally listened to it. I used to have the tape. I cannot find it. But anyway, it, the way it is, yeah, we were intercepting him, and he's telling his wife, he misses her. I'll be home soon. I love you. And then it's a shriek. It's a it's a yell. It's a shriek. And he covers the phone, and he turns around, and he tells the Sicarios, cover his mouth, and then continues to tell his wife how much he loves her. I mean, look, if you analyze that attitude, how a person can change from, I love you, honey, cover his mouth. The guy's yelling you know, they're, they're, they're still hitting him, you know. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, we always, we learned from Pablo Escobar, he hated informants, hated snitches. Uh, what do we call them now? Sources? Conf- I don't know. I'm retired. Back in our day, we called them snitches, right? I mean. Right. In- right. So, confidential
0: informants. Yeah. yeah,
3: confidential cooperators, Yeah, C.I. Those
0: who get stitches.
3: <laughs> yeah, I grew up with, hey, the guys a snitch, you know. So Anyway, so, I mean, uh, Escobar, hated snitches hated informants you know and i had five of my informants killed by Pablo Escobar and his orders to the sicarios were do not just kill them i want you to torture them i want to find out what they're saying against me and that was a perfect example poor guy yelling and then he just like Pablo Escobar just told his wife hey I'll, i'll be home soon i miss you i mean what how does a person You know, say react. How does his psychic? It's just, you know, we studied him and the guy could be the friendliest. And you know what? We told people this guy was very charismatic. Uh, Another story, one of the Sicarios, 15 year old, 15 year old. And, you know, we don't have arrest powers in Colombia. I had to get involved in arresting some of our cops. It was my informant. Anyway, so we arrested the sicario in Medellin. He took him back to the base. And 15 years old, and I'll never forget what he told me. He says, you know what, Mr. Pena? He says, uh, I work for Pablo Escobar. He says, I, me and my mother were broke. We were living in a cardboard box on the street, on the neighborhood. Pablo saws took us in, gave us money, built us a house. He said, my allegiance, he says, I will die and I will kill for Pablo Escobar. He has saved my life. And he went on to explain during the war Pablo Escobar had with the cops, he put bounties on police officers, right? You know, a bounty for Sicarios, any uniformed police officer walking that they would kill. You know, so this Sicario, 15 years old, he says, you know, by the way, I've already killed 10 police officers. He was bragging. I said, what? He said, yep. He says, I walk behind them. I shoot them in the back of their head. At the end of the day, if I kill three, I collect $300. That's, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, and he was proud of it, that he had already killed 10 police officers under the orders of Pablo Escobar bounties. Again, and you know what? A hundred dollars for a human being, for a hero that's out there protecting us, and thousands of police officers. And I'm sure if there were higher ups, they would get a little bit more. But a regular police—that's just that. That's Pablo Escobar at his at his worst. And and then the Chicago says, you know what? He says Pablo will come. Uh, and it was uh, one of the poorest uh, neighborhood churches in Medellin, and we would always share. There's a meeting at the terrace, La Terraza. We never knew what the terrace was. Matter of fact, when I went back to film with Netflix, uh, that's when I found out from one of the persons who was helping us. You know, we mentioned La Terraza. I said, yeah, he said that was one of the poorest churches in in, uh, Catholic churches in Medellin. So he would have a meeting. And this kid explained to me, he said, there'd be about 300, 400 young kids, 14, 15, 16, 17. And Pablo would come in. He said he would hug all those young kids, kiss them, give them, a you know, uh, money. But then, hey, you're working for me. So this thugs were all proud to work for Pablo Escobar. And they would kill, you know, at his any, any person that he wanted to have killed, Pablo Escobar, would, you know, they would kill. So that was that. You know what? that charismatic side of Pablo Escobar.
0: You know, Javier, one of the things that, uh, you know, from our point of view, and we're not totally naive because we're in law enforcement, but folks that listen to the show, this uh, drug dealing at this level is a national security problem for the country or the countries that the drugs are being imported to, specifically the United States. And I know, like, you know, people think that Trump's out of his mind, but Trump talked about using the military to invade Mexico to go after the cartels. I mean, it's probably not a horrible idea. And Colombia back then, and of course, I understand the politics. It could start, a, a you know, a world war. But, you know, the drug dealers are using weapons of war and tactics like almost like Hitler would use to create this reign of terror. So isn't that the force need
3: to be met with force? No, I, I believe, of course. And, and you know what? One of the good things about us that Colombia, the difference, Colombia wanted our help. They, mm. they invited us. They invited Steve and I after Pablo Escobar escaped. They said, guys, we need you at our base. Whereas Mexico doesn't want our help i mean you know there's a lot of problems right now with with mexico and this is why i'm i'm i just want this caro quintero guy to extra, get extradited right away but you gotta meet force yeah with with force uh i, I don't know what the solution is but we cannot back down uh we have we still have to go in there and you know arrest all this this traffickers and uh you know one of the things i always mention is What's the one thing that traffickers fear all over the world? What do they fear? Coming to a jail cell in the United States. You see that in Mexico, Colombia, other countries. So we're doing something right (laughs) uh, out there. But. I think it would be
1: less corruptible in, you know, you know the United States. It would be uh, more difficult to get to uh, a jail uh, corrections offices or, you know, to bribe people to, you know, facilitate escape or something like that. I think it's easier in Colombia, Mexico, yeah, whatever. Or, um, That's why I think
3: It is. And obviously we have corruption in the States. We had them in DEA. We had some corrupt Perfect. people in DEA. I know you've had them. And I know the prison system has had them. Uh, but it's not to the level that it is in, in other countries. It's, what, a couple of rotten apples, right? I mean, it's not to that level. I mean, uh, overall, you know, we're, we're good. Uh, but, you know, in those countries, money pays, and you can get anything you want to in those countries.
0: You know, I still wonder, like, with the, the whole the whole corruption thing, like, even with, in our country, we have this thing called sanctuary cities. And... I find that to be tremendously corrupt. You know what I mean? Like obviously one group, one party believes in sanctuary cities. Oh, okay. We're going to allow these people that are here illegally, these certain cities, we're going to give them sanctuary. And even though it's hurting our country and costing us billions of dollars, we're going to have certain cities. New York is one of them. New York, California, uh, you know, Chicago. allowing illegal people to come in here and that's damaging our country. And I'm sure I'm going to get some hate texts in here. That's fine. I believe that's damaging our country, sanctuary cities. And we had that little weasel mayor that, thank God, de Blasio, uh, he, he was the one behind that sanctuary city stuff.
2: Well, you know, if you look at Lady Justice, who holds the scales of justice, right, she wears a blindfold because our laws are to be applied equally and fairly amongst everybody. Nobody gets treated differently. That's the way it's supposed to be. But regardless of what you think about sanctuary cities, there's nothing fair about that. There's nothing equal. It's it's a blatant violation of law. Yeah. Yeah, and
0: you know you always hear people talk about the rule of law. If you lose the rule of law, you don't have a society. You don't have a law-abiding society. A society because law is the only thing that keeps a society cohesive, right. and keeps people, you know, it keeps people obeying uh, obeying the law and, and doing things that they're supposed to do, you know?
3: No, you, you are correct. I mean, look at the examples of uh... – some of this illegal people here that get released and they're the ones who are out there committing, the, committing the crimes. I mean, we see it. We see those examples on, on, on a daily basis. Uh, it's just, we need, we need to do something. We need to get better at that. Uh, but I don't know what I
1: you know. think the policies are going to backfire because the uptick in crime in the United States is affecting the Latin and the African-American community more than it is any other communities, because that's where these illegals wind up. They wind up in, in, the, in that community. And they did a, a study recently, uh, a, a survey actually, and they said that, the people in the Hispanic community aren't so uh, much for the open border policy They're, You know, they've come here and they've, uh, you know, they've living the American dream, started families working hard. And now you have people coming in and stealing and robbing and doing all the things that they do. And I think it's going to backfire on the, on the current administration, the current policies that are in effect because on election day, we'll see what happens. And then going into 2024, I think we'll also see then Because, uh, you know, people who are here and they realize what America is really all about, they're not going to want this influx of criminals and fentanyl and all the different things that are coming over that border.
3: You're you're 100% correct. A lot of the Hispanics, you know, they're tired. I mean, you know, if you look at the border, and I grew up at the border, the southwest border by the Laredo uh, area. Uh, My dad had a little farm, and I remember back in the day, you'd see one or two just wanting water you know some food now my brother runs our family ranch and he'll see 20 or 30 come in through our property and he just calls border patrol he takes off because you know how many of us have you know what i'm saying it's i don't know it's just it's out of control. We need to do something about it.
1: You know? We we need to have a policy. Listen, I have no problem with people coming into the country that want to be law abiding and work exactly. on it. But we it's can't law-abiding. take millions. You know, we have to have a limit to it and there has to be a system in place that we can, you know, document who's coming in. And, you know, I, I mean, how much medical, uh, can, you know, uh, medical can we provide for people you know we have to provide for our own people now we have all these other millions and then the bad thing is is what we talked about earlier the drugs coming over the border the cartels are running the border they're making millions and billions off of uh sending people over and then sending narcotics over so you know the policy is destroying our country i think that that's clear but yeah. i guess that's a conversation for another day yeah. yeah well
0: i just want you phil i want you to go to a quick commercial
1: and then we'll uh dash law.com. And Joe, you know, we weren't talking about you when we were talking about killing some attorneys that was just joking <laughs> around. But yes. a- again, anybody listening, if you'd like to advertise on police off the cuff, all you have to do is send us an email at police off the cuff one at gmail.com. Our rates are very reasonable. It might be the right thing for your business. We have an international audience and we have a very positive the United States. So uh, police off the cuff. Number one at gmail.com. You know,
0: Steve and Javier, I know you guys go all over the world, all over the country uh, talking. How about college campuses? The college students understand why uh, that just open borders is not a good thing. And look, I'm saying it. There may be people in our chat that think it's a good thing. I'm saying it's not a good thing cut co- the students on college campuses understand why it's not or they they just they think the the uh, border should be wide open
2: well we were on the uh college and university circuit there for quite some time before covid um and we were just there to tell the escobar story and we hit some of the major universities you know around the united states um, a lot of the major universities and during the q a that part never came up so it's so I guess the answer to your question is I I honestly don't know personally what their thoughts are. I know that they were, we never had any issues at any of the the universities or colleges. And, and I mean, we spoke at Ohio state, university of Texas, Tennessee, Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we've been all over uh, on the, on the college circuit. And the kids were just fascinated by the narco series. I think they were, somewhat unbelieving that, you know, two guys would really go do all that stuff and <laughs> and I think they wanted to see how crazy we were or something. They was I <laughs> guess they we were idiots. Yeah.
3: But like, and just give them a plug. We love college kids because man, they got gr- they they'll research just like y'all, mm-hmm. everything out there, and they'll come up with some great questions. But they're fun because they're not afraid to ask, or you know, uh, right. but it's always fun talking to a uh, college kids because they will have researched you back and forth. I they're guess the ones on. that
1: will will be the ones that are interested in it too. So I guess that makes sense.
0: Judy yeah. Ron, thank you for the $10 Super Chat. Brave men, I am honored to be here with these two. Steve and Javier, thank you for your service.
2: No, no, thank Ron, you. thank you for saying that. That'd be- no, thank you. <laughs> you guys, you guys a get a lot of you. that. I
0: mean, I, even though you guys are old, people like you.
2: Do you
1: remember the NYPD that's retired has a great podcast? So oh nice. he means uh, it from the heart. What
2: he said. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the girls, they're all coming in here because they all want to meet Javier. They've heard right. stories about Javier. Pena. Yeah, right. uh,
3: yeah. Netflix. You know what? I, I just got to say it's, it's fun. Cause my number, I'll, I'll, Steve will say his number one question. My number one question when we open it up to the Q&A is did I have all those affairs? Yes <laughs> like That's what they want to know. Did I have all those affairs? You know what? Wow. You know what? So you guys want to find out? Good.
0: You read this book. That's you right. get this book. You find book. out.
3: And to be on the serious side, I was ordered by the United States government. So yes. <laughs> good answer. All right. good answer. Hey, he was I doing. He was
0: having undercover affairs. He, he was doing well, it for the
3: government. I wish that would be true, man. <laughs> but anyway, Steve, yeah. tell them your number one question, man.
2: Yeah, my number one question is: Did they really sacrifice our cat on our front door when we first moved to Columbia? <laughs> and you know what? Just, just I'll answer the question for you. We did have a cat in Columbia. The cat's name was Puff. That part's true. And Puff did die in Columbia, but he was an old cat. He had a heart attack. And you it's know, Scarios didn't break in our apartment, and sacrifice him on our front door. There's, <laughs> there's some sick writers out in Hollywood. Dramatic licensing, I guess. Right? Oh, I mean, big time, big yeah. time.
0: When, when you guys look back on your DEA career and specifically, you know, the taking down of Pablo Escobar and all the things you did in connection with it. Can you actually believe that that was your life at one time?
3: You know what? Uh, there were times and, and you know what? And just real quick, the way I, you know, how the, the way I got to Colombia was a mistake I put in because uh, you're supposed to, you know, you they just don't send you. You put in for the country. And I had four years in Austin, and I put in for Mexico because I wanted to go to Mexico. Uh, and my boss comes in and says, Javier, did you put in for Colombia? I said, no, sir. I said, well, you got selected for Colombia. And he says, we can fight it because you didn't put in for it. I said, you know what, boss, the paperwork's done. I'll go to Colombia. I had to go to the map, see where Colombia was. So that was how I get there. And then my boss, I get there, says Javier oh, yeah, you got the Escobar investigation. I had heard, but I didn't really didn't know who Pablo Escobar was. So that, that was my introduction to the You know,
0: sometimes things happen by accident, and that's I, I, what's that's supposed same. to happen, you know. And
3: with Absolutely. me, it was way by accident. And I think you did too, right? See? You have well, for-
2: yeah, I actually got selected to go to Barranquilla. Um and then they so, you know, I mean, you know how it is in our law enforcement culture. For us, when you got transferred, it was on you to throw your party. <laughs> and I'd throw the party <laughs> That's right. That's work. one of the
0: way it used to be on the PD, too. They yeah. grabbed like five sergeants. All right, each guy put in $500. You're paying to get everyone else drunk, right? Yeah,
3: exactly.
2: <laughs> and, and so we threw the party and everything, and then they rescinded my transfer because they needed somebody that spoke Spanish immediately um and then you know that's so later i put in for bogota and got that that's that's how i was at bogota i really didn't know steve
0: you speak fluent spanish
2: you, you hear my accent even if i did can you imagine what it was sound like? Oh, <laughs> i
1: ain't buying that
3: <laughs> you know hey, was, i had a
1: guy in my
0: in my in the homicide squad that was big uh white irish guy scottish guy and uh he spoke fluent spanish and Uh, perps would speak right in front of them. They're like, there's no way this guy speaks Spanish. And then he would, you know, write out a statement of everything they said in front of him. you know.
2: know, They sent me to language school for six months, and and I did learn to speak Spanish. But they taught me to speak proper Spanish. I don't speak proper English. You know, so I got to Columbia. I I could talk to the cops, and, you know, I used all the vocabulary I knew. And then they would talk back to me in colloquial and dialects, you know, that I wasn't familiar with. Um, so, but, but here's another cool thing about the cops down there. When we were chasing Escobar, if we had a day when, you know, things weren't so busy, a couple of the cops would grab me and they're like, Hey Murph, let's go get a, well, stick, they, uh-huh. they a stick, let's go get a cup of coffee. And we would just sit there and we'd practice Spanish. They would teach me different things. And, and, you know, a lot of the operations that Javier and I went on, you could be on these Huey gunships flying in to raid these places. And you're the only English speaker. You know, and the, and the commander's looking at you, and he's, in Spanish, he's saying, Sneak, me and you are going to take the front door. So you had to be able to, to converse a, a little bit.
0: Right, to understand, yeah. yeah. Uh, Will Pony, thank you for the 999 Super Chat. Again, did you have all these affairs undercover? Wow! Who wouldn't want to even get their hand kissed by these warriors? Whoa! Oh, this this show is going from a PG
3: rating to an R rating. I, I don't
0: know. Yeah, we got I
3: wish. I wish all that would a, a fan
0: team. club. That's, that's
3: right. You, you need I to post your phone that. number up here, Javier. I that's right.
1: One eight hundred. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, guys, I got a question about yeah. Pablo Escobar here. Um, I'm going to use an analogy from organized crime in New York. Now, when Joe Colombo started the Italian American Civil Rights League, uh, he was bringing a lot of attention to the mafia and he basically was killed. And there's always rumor and innuendo that. The godfather at the time looked the other way, like, let it happen. Did any of Pablo Escobar's rival drug dealers try to take him out at any time during the investigation?
3: Oh, that was one of the biggest wars. Uh, Yes. And you know what? And it hits New York because it's it was the Cali cartel who hated Pablo because Pablo was trying to take control over New York. And if you know and I know, you know, some of the NYPD guys working back then, Cali cartel. Pretty much controlled the New York markets. Pablo was trying, and they uh Cali Cartel wanted to kill Pablo Escobar. And the war goes back. I think they had like a 15-year, uh 15-year uh, war. And uh, it goes back to basically turf, but Cali Cartel put a bomb at Pablo Escobar's building, called the Monaco building in Medellin, you know, trying to kill the family. And the only one that was served was Pablo Escobar's little daughter little, you know, I think five, six-year-old at the time. So can you imagine the hatred Pablo had towards a Cali cartel? He retaliated and had a soccer game in Cali. Pablo had a whole bunch of them killed. Cali hired British mercenaries. I mean, can you believe that? They they, they, they planned the raid. They had choppers that had uh, people out there that were going to go kill Pablo at his ranch. The, they had to abort. One of the choppers crashed. It never took place, but there were british mercenaries that were paid by the uh, by the cali cartel so yes cali cartel was always trying to kill pablo and it's the cali cartel who hooked up with los pepes cali cartel financed los pepes to try to do all the atrocities all the bombs in uh in medellin and uh, later on we found out who was leading it and you know what we had one of our officers in Out of respect, I'm not going to mention his name. The guy later on got killed. uh, But one of our officers, mid-ranking, was helping out with Pepes, was helping out the Cali cartel. So it was, you know. And we find out after Escobar gets killed. Matter of fact, uh, the head of Pepes, guy Don Berna, he's in the United States right now. He got extradited. In a prison, uh, and that's where we get accused. I get accused especially because Domberna was always at our uh, at our police base, helping out the cops. So we know him. Steve and I know him, and uh, later on, we found out that he was a head of Los Pepes. So that's where I get because I get a lot of accusations in real life. I get an accusation that I was a member of Los Pepes that was out there killing and all that. So that was. My second time in, in Colombia, and we were going up against the Cali cartel. And you know what? It got so bad that I had to leave Colombia because I was just getting inundated by the press with accusations. You know, it's you know some of y'all know about the stress right but physically get you know, i just said hey you know what i can't take this the, the more bullshit.
1: active you are in law enforcement the more but, you get the allegations
3: yeah, so. yeah all right. and i was getting allegations that was all bullshit it was never you know so i that's only that's why i did two years my second time in colombia it was not true and uh but yeah uh, anyway but uh going back to yeah trafficker's cali hated pablo and after pablo gets killed Basically, the son of Juan Pablo, you know, uh, the son of Pablo, I'm sorry, his name is Juan Pablo, he's changed his name. He goes to the Cali cartel, says, hey, truce, guys, my family, we want to leave here in peace. Please, no, uh, no more wars. Cali cartels, this kid, you got 24 hours for you and your family to leave Colombia. If not, we're going to kill everybody. So they left. They changed their names. They, they left the, the country.
2: Hey, I got, I got to say something, Bill. That photo you just showed—you were talking about us wearing uh, uh, Rolex watches. Look at that ten-dollar Casio watch I'm <laughs> wearing, and, and, and it's got blood, blood on it too. But it's probably like-
0: worth the fortune with that blood on it, you know. <laughs> Some people in the chat will build, they will will take a little a bidding war, you know. They want to buy it, you know. So, guys, I mean, this is fascinating. It's a fascinating yeah, story. And I'm sure we didn't even scratch the surface. No, we, we but well, I told you guys when we when you first came on, before we came on, that we were just going to have a conversation. And I think that's what we did, you know. Yeah. And I think it's more interesting for our listeners right. to just hear us talking like cops doing a bar. Uh, I, I'm sorry I don't have any Coronas that I could give you, <laughs> but, you know. Because the stories yeah. get better when you drink Corona, I think. You no, know, and,
3: and I just want to reiterate, Steve said it, but the real heroes, Columbia, National Police, and, and one of the real heroes is Colonel Hugo Martinez, who led the search block, uh, who later on got promoted to a general, and his boss, it never got the recognition, uh, and his name is General Octavio Vargas Silva. He was the architect. He was like the chief of police, but he was just very smart, and he's the one who organized the search for Pablo Escobar. There's two gentlemen and Colonel Martinez's son, Lieutenant uh, Hugo Martinez. If people don't know, it's father-son team from the police, a colonel and a lieutenant. The lieutenant is the one who DFs Pablo Escobar speaking. And that's how they ended up locating him and getting him killed. They are the heroes. And you know what? And we, at every, uh, with every audience, we ended by saying, visit Colombia. It's a beautiful country, it's a great country, uh, great people. The police now is a model. I mean, you know, just vi- visit. Tourism is safe. I- I've had a lot of friends that are visiting mm-hmm. Medellin. You know, and the only caveat, you know, uh, Bill and Phil, I tell people, if you do go to Medellin, you do not bat mouth Pablo Escobar Medellin.
0: Right. You keep your uh, mouth shut. But oh, they, they got some of those old, uh, your old retread women left there.
2: <laughs> I,
0: wish. I
3: wish
2: their daughters and their granddaughters. Yeah,
0: yeah you may. Think some people may come from our show and say, "Hey, well uh, hey, you know Javier Pena? Oh, yeah, papi, yeah, yo, yo." <laughs> <You> <laughs> <papi> Spanish. Spanish. <laughs> you
3: hey, I Mira, with, Mira,
0: papi.
2: <laughs> I just want to say to to you guys, you know, NYPD. You have the respect of law enforcement around the world. You guys encounter everything. I, you know situations that nobody else has in the United States. Um, And what I love about going to New York is when you meet a New York cop and they find out who you are, you're a brother. You know, it's still old school. I've been up there in New York for meetings when we were writing the book and and doing some TV stuff. And uh, we were walking by one day and and it just happened to be right there where Trump Tower was. and, And there was like 10 cops and there was, and Trump was in the tower. So there was cops everywhere. And these two old producers are with me, and they said, hey, you see those NYPD guys? I bet you're afraid to go talk to them. And I said, come on, I'll introduce you. I mean, I know you guys. And so before we got up, there, like, hey, guys, you know who this is? This is that guy, Steve Murphy from DEA, and he was in Narcos. And the next thing you know, I got arms around me like we've been brothers you know, for years. And, and You know, that
0: is a great thing about law enforcement. There is that brotherhood, like no matter where you go in the world, you're a cop. Another cop will give you the time of day. We'll take a picture with you. We'll... You have that camaraderie, you know? Like, if I just tell them who I am anywhere in the world, they say, Oh, you're the supreme commander.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'll That's tell part. you, man, people do treat us good. The cops treat us good around the country, but nobody treats us like NYPD. You guys are top notch. My hat's, off, just, to my hat's off to you. Thank and you very telling, much. That's I, a nice I got to
3: mention, during the Escobar search, I mean, your guys had more knowledge, always giving us intelligence. I mean, it, it was great. It was great. Yeah, you know it's 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 so
0: it's that's so true. Like when you go anywhere, and like as detectives, when we would go look for someone, we'd go into another town, another city, another state, and you just go meet with their detectives, and they're throwing their vests on, and they'll do whatever they you want them to do, Mm -hmm. and that's an amazing thing, you know. Well, you could get to some place and be like, oh, what are well, you bothering us tonight? There's a ball game on, you know? Yeah, there's
3: a ball game but, can come on. Yeah, out.
0: but, you know, once, you know, when you go and and you're the NYPD or I'm sure when other police departments come to us, it's the same thing. What do you got? What do you need? And, and we'll go out with them and we'll go. You know, Look, if they're looking for bad Bart and he's got 40 guns, we'll go in with them, you know, yeah. and we'll meet that threat with as much force as it needs to be met with. You
1: know, yeah. We had a policy when we would go out of state, like a lot of times we would go into Jersey, uh, they'd buy us dinner, and if they came over, we would buy them dinner. That would be the thing, that yeah. they wouldn't let us pay. They'd take us out for a dinner and a beer, and same thing, when they came by us, we would do the same thing for them. And it's just mutual respect. Yeah. And there's nothing like that brotherhood, that camaraderie between- Oh, Long Phil, and- are
0: you trying to find out where Steve and Javier are going to be <laughs> so they'll buy us dinner? <laughs>
1: No, <laughs> yeah. well, I'm gonna make the offer that if they're in New York and they get a hold of us and we could all meet up, I'm buying them the first beer. How's that?
3: Oh, all right, good. Hey, I know
0: I, I was reading the book and Javier likes his beer, man. So I you know may. Right. <laughs> I've well,
3: got plenty of beer. That's why. Uh, that's right. All right, right I'll buy the beer.
1: first five. Hey,
3: you, yeah. Gotta, yeah. you gotta understand Javier's position. I don't right. drink alcohol anymore,
2: so he's gotta drink for two. <laughs> yeah, right. I drink for Stevie's so. but hey, if you can't, if you're coming to
3: Orlando, let me know. And I'm in San Antonio. Please let me know, too.
0: That's great. So, guys, uh, Steve, final words?
2: Uh, I, I just wanted to get that out about my thoughts about NYPD, because I've done things up there on the job with some of your cohorts that um, I, and I just mentioned this one. We were up there for meetings and, and the evening was rolling around and the guys came. It was New York uh, Drug Enforcement Task Force. I see your sign behind you there, Phil. And... and they said, What do you guys want to do tonight? And so I had some young guys with me. They said, We'd like to see ground zero. And this is when they were still digging it out. Yeah. Next thing you know, we got several unmarked cruisers sitting out there. We're going up the road along the river there. Uh, traffic backs up. Next thing you know, they're they're hitting their horns, but their sirens are hooked to their horns. And so you know they're whoop-whooping everybody as we're going. And the next thing you know, we're up on the sidewalks. And then the guys at the at the site at ground zero see us coming and they're moving people out of the way. Uh, just old school—the way you treat other police officers. Yeah, you're just right, man. That's—I
0: uh, think we're starting to lose some of that. But you're right—that old school police work and uh, the mutual respect—and yeah, what, what do you want? We'll do—we'll do it for you. You know. Yeah,
2: yeah. But just—just uh, just repeat also. True honor to be with you two guys on here. Um, you know, you want to see some heroes? Your listeners are looking at them. I mean, you guys have a fantastic following. I looked you up on YouTube. You got a, a, a fantastic following. There, a great show. This has been so much fun than just sitting and, and going by script, trying to answer questions. So, God bless you guys. Thank you. Well, oh, so thank much. you, so Steve.
0: Hard. We appreciate. It. Javier, we got to give you some last uh, because you know everyone's going to be calling you for uh, the numbers of your. Uh, your Chiquitas. Bill, Bill,
3: yeah, Chiquitas. I mean, wow. And what y'all have seen in your career, I mean, no one has seen it. New York, I mean, y'all have been there. You've done it. You know You know how it is. Some people will start bragging, guys. You've been there 100 times, uh, front and back. So thank you. And like Steve, I just want to echo, I mean, you guys are fantastic. They've always treated us like golden. I know our DEA guys working with with NYPD, they love NYPD. There's a joint uh, brotherhood. And also, again, I want to tell the listeners, visit Colombia. It's a beautiful country. We're being very sincere. It's very safe. It's, uh, like I said, beautiful. And uh, again, the true heroes in Colombia were the cops. Columbia National Police, nobody else, not CIA, not military, it was in.
0: That's great, Javier. Uh, Phil, final words.
1: This was such a great show. It was such an honor and a pleasure to meet you guys. And this thing right here, I don't know if you guys could see it. My daughter gave me that Christmas time. It says real heroes don't wear capes. It's the truth. We're amongst uh, heroes here. And you guys, the one thing that I took away from this was that you didn't try to say, well, I did it. I did it. You said we throughout the whole thing. You talked about the heroes in Colombia. Uh, the analysts, all the people that helped together. Anytime mm-hmm. I talk about a homicide investigation that I worked on, I always say it was a team effort. You guys are uh, exemplary. Uh, uh, you, you're showing that that's what it is. It's a team effort. You're not yeah, trying to right. say that you guys are you know, the greatest things in sliced bread, so to speak. But thank you very much for coming thank on. It. it was a pleasure. and uh, Hopefully, we'll meet up one day, maybe in New York oh. or in uh, Orlando or in uh, yep. Texas.
3: Yep.
0: Guys, thank you so much, for f- folks, all you folks listening. Thank you so much for your support. And, uh, I mean, th- these are the two of the greatest guests we've had probably in the history of the show. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. And I always like it when we get guests that, like, almost like celebrity guests, because I want to show somebody's of these celebrity hosts, we can do it too. You know, Definitely. we don't want questions to <laughs> ask,
1: right? <laughs> God Absolutely. bless, guys. Folks, have you, a great thank you,
0: night. thanks everyone.
3: All right bye bye
2: One it so just sing enough